Certainly appreciate such a timely song in view of where we are this morning in the midst of our summer series. Our series is entitled, I Have Questions. And back during the month of May, we asked you to submit any questions that were on your heart, questions about faith or life, just whatever. And through the months of June and July, we would seek to address those questions from a biblical perspective. How do we as followers of Jesus respond to these types of questions? A number of the questions you submitted could be described as somewhat political in nature. And I chose deliberately then to hold those questions until this Sunday, since this past Thursday was the 4th of July, it seemed like it would be an appropriate time for us to reflect on some of the questions that you raised. And so that's what I want us to do this morning with God's help, just to better understand as followers of Jesus, how do we relate to these types of questions? Now, the first question really sets, I think, the tone for uh, today's emphasis, and it's this. Where is the church's place in politics today? I think that's a relevant question. How should people of faith relate to the political environment around them? Should we be silent? Should we step back? Should we engage? I mean, how should those who follow Jesus Christ respond to the politics of 2019? I think to answer that question, it would benefit us just to have a little bit of history, if I might, to point us to the journey that has been that of Baptists historically. And I would mention two names to you in particular. Maybe this afternoon you'll Google their names and read further about their example, but the two names would be Isaac Bacchus and John Leland. Any of you heard of either of these individuals? Some of you are nodding your head, yes. Most of you are probably saying, no, I don't think I know Mr. Bacchus or Mr. Leland. Who were they? Well, after our nation secured its independence uh, in 1780, I guess, three, the country was immediately moving to establish a constitution, trying to define for our nation the direction we would now go. And Isaac Bacchus and John Leland are two Baptist followers of Jesus that were very engaged in that discussion, very active in trying to influence what would be the direction of our nation as it was formalizing a constitution, kind of charting its path. Now, let me talk specifically about John Leland, if I might. There's even a I think a little statue of him, uh, if you were driving across Virginia today, you could stop at the John Leland and, and, and uh, excuse me, John Leland Monument, and you could read his testimony in terms of his influence. There's a historical marker celebrating his life. Now, if you were to actually read what the marker says, this is what it would describe, and let me see if I can find that for you. Near this spot in 1788, Elder John Leland and James Madison, 
the father of the American Constitution, held a significant interview which resulted in the adoption of the Constitution by Virginia. Then Madison, a member of Congress from Orange, presented the first amendment to the Constitution guaranteeing religious liberty, free speech, and free press. This satisfied Leland and his Baptist followers. Again, I'm not sure how recently you've read this part of our American history, but after we secured our independence as a nation, we were defining, okay, what kind of nation will we be? And uh, they began to move toward the adoption of a constitution. And as they began to move in that direction, some of the early writings surrounding the Constitution didn't necessarily include what we would describe to be uh, the freedom of religion. Though they expressed it, it, it wasn't specified in a way that guaranteed it. And so there was a lot of debate among the states, and, and they were trying to move toward the adoption of the Constitution, and they were struggling because some states were insisting on certain things to be present, other states were uh, demanding other elements, and in the midst of that debate, there was a argument that this nation, among the many things that it would establish as a freedom, needed to guarantee the freedom of religion. And that's where John Leland comes into focus. A Baptist leader in Virginia, he was watching what was unfolding in terms of this constitutional debate, and he was very concerned that the liberty that so many had fought for through the Revolutionary War was going to be lost. And so, as James Madison was running for Congress there in Virginia, John Leland out of a desire to influence the process, uh, considered running himself. Now, Baptists in Virginia were a notable number. And James Madison knew that. And so, as this monument indicates, a day came when James Madison visited John Leland. And interestingly, out of that discussion, John Leland withdrew his consideration of running and pledged his support to James Madison with the understanding that James Madison would do everything within his power to guarantee religious freedom. If you know the rest of the story, James Madison was elected, and James Madison then became the most vocal person in Congress driving forward what we call the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution and so you could say, in a very real way, John Leland set a path through his engagement that resulted in our freedom in 2019 together as we have today, freely, without any concern of, of some negative consequence. Because you see, because of his influence and Isaac Backe's influence and James Madison's actions, we have those uh, 10 amendments. And the first being, just to remind you of what the first amendment defines, it is worded this way, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion 
or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, the point I'm making is simply this. If John Leland had chose to disengage from that process, if Baptists as a group had chose to, to not be a part of that political period of time, can we be assured that this outcome would have resulted? I don't think you could. If you read the writings of the day, there was a lot of debate on what the government should or should not do and what freedom should or should not be allowed. But thankfully, men like John Leedlin and others stepped forward and tried in the midst of the political environment to be an influence. Now, one other comment as you think about this First Amendment, what's described here is sometimes referred to as the separation of church and state. But I would stress with you, as John Leland and others promoted it, it was the separation of church and state for religion. They didn't want the government restraining the ability of a religious person to openly pursue and to outwardly express their faith. It was for the benefit of the religion of those that would be religious. It was not a separation from. It's not that you're trying to disengage religious people from the political atmosphere or from the public forum, but rather because of the First Amendment, we have an opportunity, a, a freedom, a privilege to be a part of this process. And so if you're asking, well, what should be a response of a Christian in 2019, as we look at what's happening around us in the political atmosphere, I, I would say we probably should follow in the example of those that have paved the way for us. That as you think about it, it's not so much that we run from politics in 2019, but we thoughtfully participate as a, every American citizen should. Now, I would say, if you're looking from a biblical perspective, how does this relate to what the Bible would teach us? I would remind you of what Jesus taught his early disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, because I think it's truly a relevant passage. He says this to them in Matthew 5 and verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Now, I'm not going to take an extended time to discuss the implications of this passage. I simply note, and I hope you see it, that Jesus expects those who follow him, those who relate to him, to be positive agents of change in the world in which they live. Like salt, like light, we are to bring about positive influence and change in such a way that as people observe that, ultimately they may even praise God because of that. But as I look at these words, it seems to emphasize that that should be true of every aspect of our life. It certainly should be true when we come within the church to worship. It should be true in how you affect your affairs at home. It it should influence what you do when you're in the workplace. And it should be seen in your participation and what is our right as American citizens to share in this political process. So my appeal, and I've said this in the past, I think as we engage the world around us on whatever level, we're praying that we might reflect Jesus' influence in our life. That we're light, we're salt, Again, I remind you of what Jesus said in John 8 when he said of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All I'm suggesting to us as we think about these issues today is our relationship with Jesus should then influence whatever we do in whatever circle we're in. Now, I'm not saying that we do that in a way that is harsh and vindictive and perceived as as attacking. I'm saying we're light and salt. We are a reflection of Jesus in our lives and in the world that is around us. And so I would trust that will be true and how we participate in whatever political processes or opportunities that are around us. Which then brings me to a second question, which involves the election itself. Several of you had questions with regard to uh, candidates being elected, and let me give you the first of those questions, and then I'll share the others that were added. Should the church support a candidate who does not live out Christian values in his daily personal life? That was one question. Another person asked it this way, should we as a church vote for the opposition party candidate that embraces Christianity and its values rather than paying lip service to the faith? Or how about this, even a little bit more pointed, how do you think God feels about Donald Trump? (laughs) Specifically, How do you think God feels about his consistent and unabashed lying to the American people? How his brand has become synonymous with racism and hatred of already marginalized populations? How he has had multiple affairs with porn stars while married? How he has been married multiple times? How he has treated immigrants, migrants, and refugees? How he is a constant cyber bully? In short, do you think that the Christian church should continue to support him 
because he espouses saying Merry Christmas and says he's pro-life? Or is it time to find another candidate who not only talks the talk, but can walk the walk of Christianity in a modern political setting? I don't think this person likes Donald Trump. <laughs> now, going back, though, to the earlier question, should the church support a candidate who does not live out Christian values? Can I first say, just as a, an acknowledgement, over the years as a pastor, I've tried not to speak directly toward the various presidents that have served about the various presidents have served over the tenure of my pastor. Now, there have been a few exceptions to that. One very notable one, in 1998, I think, uh, I had something to say, and it resulted in a person standing up in the midst of my message and abruptly leaving. He said, well, what in the world did you say? Well, if you remember 1998, it was that period of time during the Bill Clinton controversies, and it had come to a point where then-President Clinton had publicly asked for forgiveness. If you remember that, uh, just if I may, just to read his own words, in 1998, he said, I have repented. I must have God's help to be the person that I want to be, a willingness to give the very forgiveness I seek, a renunciation of the pride and the anger which cloud judgment lead people to excuse and compare and to blame and to complain. Now, he had publicly confessed that. And that particular morning, my wife was there, she will remember it, I, I said, you know, President Clinton has asked for forgiveness. And Matthew 18 teaches us that when a person publicly repents and seeks forgiveness, that it's the responsibilities of those who know and follow Jesus to extend Forgiveness. And that woman stood up and stormed out. And I called her. I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I saw that you left. Uh, can we talk? And she says, listen, I in no way will support anything that you had to say about forgiving President Clinton, and I will not be back. And she did not return. Now you can appreciate why I was a little, appreciate why maybe was a little hesitant to speak about a specific presidential candidate even in 2019. My intention is never to alienate and to drive away people that come together into a place of worship so that we might discover mutually the help of Jesus Christ. But as the question has been raised, how does a follower of Jesus respond to the question? I mean, do we elect individuals that do not publicly display, display the Christian virtues that we would desire. And as you would look at that question, I, I would stress, if we're going to consider that, we need to consider it from the broadest of ramifications. I think the same question should be asked of my, uh, candidates for mayor, candidates for governor, candidates for Congress and Senate. I mean, if we're going to begin to adopt this approach, let's be consistent in how we adopt the approach. And if that's our pursuit, then how can we practically determine, I guess, the authenticity of any person's faith? Now, no question, President Trump has lived a lifestyle that in many regards has exposed his inadequacies. But in terms of the question, 
Is that going to be the criteria we use to determine whether or not we will support this person versus that person? In a way, and this is the the way that I've tried to, to approach this since I first voted in 1980, I always thought that from my perspective, as I participated in the political system, what I was seeking to do was to elect individuals who supported policies that within my heart I had some level of agreement. If they were supporting the policies, then I would seek to elect those individuals. And so I guess that raises the relevant question. I mean, what drives us? Is it the person or the policy? Now, if you're wondering, well, what does the Bible have to say about it? The Bible doesn't speak to how you elect presidents. In fact, when Paul and Peter and others wrote and recorded for us the words of Jesus, realized they had no such opportunity. They had leadership imposed on them. Now, if you want a biblical passage that I think is is one that should be considered today and every day from a spiritual point of view when it comes to political leaders, I read for you Paul's words of wisdom to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. He says, now, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who, and I love this, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I couldn't help but interjecting a little bit about Jesus into this political discussion. I'm so glad he came to save and to redeem. But Paul's appeal to Timothy, and through Timothy, his instruction to us is, listen, when it comes to our awareness of of leaders in authority, our first priority is to pray for them, to pray consistently for them. And throughout my life in ministry, as I've interacted with various ones about their displeasure over different political candidates, I've tried to say, now, Be sure you're praying for the person as much as you're talking about them. Let that set kind of the criteria for yourself, that you're going to free yourself up to speak openly. That's your right as an American citizen, but be sure that you're praying in the midst of that. But say, okay, I'm praying for those that are in position of authority. How do I determine who I will elect? Well, again, that's... Finally, we'll come back to you. You need to decide whether that's going to be driven by your impression of who the person is or are you going to potentially be guided by a policy that is a a deeper conviction to you. I'm not going to deny in my life one of the policies that is a driving conviction for me is the policy that protects the life of the unborn. That's a huge thing for me. I don't say that in, that in a dismissive way as if all of the other things don't matter. I'm just saying I have the conviction that life begins at conception. And as that is true, then it's imperative upon me to try to do whatever I can to protect that life. And in our present day, the uh, 
activity of electing various individuals can go a long way, one way or the other, in achieving that. You say, well, how do you know life begins there? Because our culture doesn't seem to, to, to say that. Well, I know our culture seems to say that when a woman becomes pregnant, initially what's within her body is just a, a tissue of some sort. But science tells us that that tissue actually has a distinct DNA that is distinct from the mother. And so it's not just a part of her body. There's something that's distinct about the tissue that is then forming. Science also tells us that within, what, 23, 24 days, uh, a, a beat begins to emerge. Just a matter of three weeks? Now, mom and dad can't hear the heartbeat of that unborn child until week six or seven. But just so you know, medically speaking, we know science tells us that within this woman's body, there is an independent beat of the heart. Now, it astounds me how in our culture, it really is governed by whether the child is wanted or not. If the child's not wanted, then it's a fetus, it's a tissue. If the child is wanted, then the culture speaks as if the child is a baby. All governed by what is the preference or the position of the individual. Well, from my perspective, I believe the most rational and consistent approach to that issue is to conclude that life begins at conception. Otherwise, there's no way to determine when it does begin. I mean, in several states in our country, to this day, a mother can go into an abortion clinic the day before the potential delivery date and kill that child legally. Um, I'm just trying to explain to you something that's very real to me. I'm not imposing this on you. Well, it's okay. But I want you to appreciate that we make decisions based on convictions. And for me, ever since 1980, this has been something that I care about and has been very influential in how I go about my political participation whether it's on the state level or the national level, it's something that affects my thinking. Now, my challenge to each of us is you need to reach some conclusions within your own self about what that means for you. And as you come to those conclusions, then you try to, I hope, prayerfully recognize, okay, this is the right path for me, this is how I will participate in the political process. But please don't be, again, critical of a person that supposedly is driven by a single issue. I, I think that's a pretty important issue for me. And I think we need to be conscious of that and appreciative of people that are going to be driven by those types of issues, whatever those potential issues may or may not be. Which brings me to another question, which is really interesting. It, it emphasizes yet another issue that many of you saw to be a, a source of concern. Um, let me see if I can voice the question as I've raised it initially, and then I'll read the questions as they were submitted. Uh, here's the question. What is a Christian response to the increasing number of people crossing our nation's border? 
Now, there were several questions like that. Let me read the others. Do our neighbors include refugees and immigrants? If so, should we as a church oppose policies that do not protect them or support them? Or another question, how do I deal with the border issue and other political issues as a Christian and not come off all uppity? I know I'm, a, I'm called to love all people, but what about? And then kind of leaves that undefined. Sometimes it's like Christian life versus American life. Still another similar question. Should the church support all of its neighbors? And neighbors is in quotation marks, including the marginalized, such as gay or trans individuals and refugees. Just a, a comment. Next Sunday, we're going to come back and talk about the gender identity question Several of you raised that specifically. Uh, one of you, I guess a teacher in one of the school system, indicates that there are some changes in the school system and the curriculum potentially based on these cultural developments. And so we'll come back and look at that uh, next week exclusively. And then finally, do you think God would support a wall? Okay. Now, let's look at this question just as a follower of Jesus and ask, honestly, okay, how do I relate to this? How would Jesus have me to, to respond to this in a personal way? And in my mind, really what's at issue is you look at this present political debate, and it has become highly politicized, is, okay, are we going to move toward unlimited compassion versus legislated control? That's really the heart of this current debate. Are we going to side with the position that says, listen, we need to have an undefined measure of compassion toward anyone and everyone that would seek to cross our national border, or the other spectrum of that, do we develop a process that absolutely guarantees some level of legislated control of the number of people that would cross the border. Now, those that would argue for the unlimited compassion do so because of what the Bible teaches about love. I remind you of Jesus' own words. When he was asked the question, what are the great commandments? He said in Matthew 22, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is, Jesus explained, the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus asked a, a man this same question, and he responded with the same answer. But when Jesus pressed him, the man then asked a broader question, well, then who is my neighbor? And you know how Jesus explained the answer to that by sharing what we know to be the parable of the Good Samaritan, where uh, a man was beaten and left for dead, and two religious figures crossed by, ignoring him. And then the most unlikely person, a Samaritan, stops by and renders aid to the Jewish man. And from that, Jesus is illustrated, illustrating that our compassion, our love, our mercy is directed pretty much to anyone and everyone. If the Samaritan would care for this uh, injured Jewish man, we then in turn should be equally compassionate to anyone that might come across our path. So how do, do these passages relate to, to the present uh, political discussion? Well, again, I think it should be fairly stated that compassion for those who follow Jesus should consistently be expressed. 
that when we interact with our neighbors, literally, or people that are coming across our path in the ins and outs of life, that what should characterize our actions should be love, should be compassion. We shouldn't be sizing people up. We should be extending a level of compassion to them that reflects Jesus' influence upon our life. I think that should be seen. Now, on the other side of that, though, there's those that would emphasize that there needs to be some regulated control of how many people are crossing. And they would point to other passages of Scripture that emphasize the role of government, which is to do what? To maintain order and control. I remind you of the Apostle Peter's words. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to be to the emperor or as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is fascinating to me. Peter was living in a day where the government, in many regards, was very oppressive. And yet, Peter's response is... As followers of Jesus, we recognize that God works through governmental authorities to maintain order. The Apostle Paul echoes this when he writes to Titus and says in Titus 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then he adds, listen to this, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I think Titus 3.2 is the perfect verse to define how we engage people politically. That we speak evil of no one. That we allow the influence of Jesus to be seen in what we say. We're gentle, we're avoiding quarreling, we're courteous to all people. Now, I read these passages to kind of create this visual, I guess tension that we see. On one side, we see a desire to extend compassion unconditionally. On the other side, we know biblically that there is a place for government to provide some structure in order to what's happening in the society so that the society can function. Now, my preference as you look at this current debate is try to avoid the extremes and why not aim for the middle? Why not Aim for compassionate legislative control. Now, what breaks my heart is apparently in Washington, D.C. right now, they don't seem to be able to come to that middle um, for whatever reason. But yet, as we're looking at the issue as a follower of Jesus, how should we engage? I think we should show compassion as we can be compassionate and, as the Bible would teach, we sh certainly should be supportive of the government seeking to provide for us the necessary order so that society can function effectively. Now, one of the problems I think that we have in today's environment is people are not looking to be informed. They're simply driven by headlines provocative headlines. We talked about this earlier when I shared a, a message on the fact that I think we're just living in a day of outrage where people are just wanting to constantly be outraged. And, and what feeds that are just, we just basically reach our decisions because we read a headline or we hear a two or three minute news story and that settles it for us. Few issues in life are that simple. 
And as a follower of Jesus, if I'm going to engage in trying to be a light in the midst of our culture, above all things, I need to know what's happening, don't I? I need to be aware of the details so that I can find the appropriate compassion and the appropriate support of government authority. Now, I, I say that just to say, I do hope you understand the challenge we're in in 2019 when it comes to the immigration issue. There's a graph that I, I would show you just to illustrate that if I could. Uh, if you'll notice, what we have here is pretty much a representation of the influx of people that are crossing our national border. The red line represents, uh, starting this past uh, October 2018, extending now into May and June of 2019. All of the other co colored lines represent the previous years. Now, this is a chart provided by the Customs Department, and what you should recognize, the top of that red line represents the most recent month of May, where there was an influx of approximately 140,000 people across our national border, 130,000 of them without any legal basis of entry. Now, look at that and just see it what it is. Something has changed in terms of the amount of influx, and I think even as of this last week, both parties are maybe starting to admit something is going on that has to be addressed because you have so many people that are coming across the border, there's not the appropriate housing to provide the care for those that are being detained. But you see, this is, this is factual. This is where we are. Now, one other graph that I thought was also insightful as you study this, this represents the percentage of immigrants that make up our population in the U.S., and at the top of that line, as of 2018, I think is where the numbers were drawn, we have approximately 44 million immigrants dwelling in our nation. Now, the vast majority have come into the nation legally, um, a percentage of that without the legal documentation, but 44 million make up our population in 2018. And 19. Now, I'm just illustrating this because sometimes those that are suggesting that there needs to be some legislated control are insinuating that I guess we're not showing enough compassion to those that are wanting to enter into our nation. I just want you to know our nation historically has been extraordinarily generous in desiring to bring people into the nation so that they can share in the opportunities that our nation affords. But the challenge in 2019 is it seems as if our country's and our government's ability to, to navigate this has become more difficult. And so what do we do to find a solution? What we don't do is demonize everybody that has a different opinion from us. You shouldn't demonize somebody that wants to show compassion. Why? Because as a follower of Jesus, we should want to extend compassion. On the other side of that, those of you that want to be compassionate shouldn't demonize someone that's saying, listen, I'm not so sure we've got a handle on the numbers of people that are coming across the border. 
a large percentage of which is going to affect the population of Texas. Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, in, in the list of the top 20 cities of immigrants, we're in the top 20. It affects us in a personal way. So would we then demonize a person that would say, no, I think there needs to be some, some level of control? Rather than pointing fingers, pray that we will have political figures that will be bold enough to find the middle somewhere and say, let's find a solution. But as long as we're just pointing the finger at each other and criticizing the other as if they're in some way immoral because they have adopted whatever the position may be, it doesn't achieve anything, does it? So those who ask the question, what is our response? I think the Bible would point us toward that middle somewhere, somehow. That as followers of Jesus, we seek to be difference makers in our culture that could result in positive good. Let me close. I've gone too long. Let me, let me bring this back to Jesus' earlier words. You know, my prayer for us is that we'll be just what Jesus said. That you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. May we respond to Jesus in personal ways where that's what we're asking Jesus will do through each of us. Now stay with me. That may actually lead some of us as we seek to express that to find ourselves standing on different positions of the same issue. And that's all right. My appeal, though, is be sure as we take these stands and as we participate in the public forum that it flows out of our faith and then we engage the people around us in a way that would reflect Jesus' influence upon our lives. That there will be a gentleness in what we do, a desire to find understanding so that we find solutions rather than further alienating everyone around us. I hope, as I've shared this morning's message, it's not going to lead some of you to say, well, I'll never come back there again. I'm just grateful no one stood up and stomped out. I, I get that's something. But my longing, above all things, is that we will be known as followers of Jesus first and foremost. And that as we engage the world around us, that we'll let that lead us in ways that reflect that devotion to Jesus Christ. That leads you to one political party versus another. That doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is if you're following Jesus Christ and allowing that to be reflected in what you do and how you live. Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to share. I'm grateful for leaders like John Leland and Isaac Backus that was so, so passionate 
to give us this opportunity to speak without the fear of reprisal. God, I'm grateful for their courage and their commitment. And I pray in 2019 that as men and women of faith that we'll allow our faith to influence us as we engage the world around us politically. Let us not fall into the traps of our day that are so demeaning. Uh, help us to honor you as we engage in our world around us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.